This reading is John 14, 12 through 20. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. New York Times columnist David Brooks recently wrote a national bestseller titled The Road to Character. And in it, he distinguishes between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the skills that we bring to the marketplace. They're our achievements, our qualifications that we typically list on our resume. Eulogy virtues are the virtues that people talk about at our funeral, the kind of person that we are, or in the case of a funeral, the kind of person we were. And what's interesting to me as I was reading this book is it seems that the Bible is also concerned with what Brooks describes as eulogy virtues. But the Bible doesn't use the terminology of eulogy virtues. Instead, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. I'd like to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, as we look at the fruit that the Spirit produces. If If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat. It's a blue one, and I'd invite you to turn to page 974. It's important to have a text in front of you to look at what the what God is saying to us. If you're new to grace, we've just begun a conversation around the theme, transformed into his image. Transformed into his image. And we're exploring the question, or at least last week we explored the question, what does God want for us? What does God want for us? Now listen carefully to that question. What does God want for us? And then there's another piece that I didn't emphasize last week, and that is, what does God want for us? Not from us. It's probably, it's probably safe to say that a lot of people come in here on any given Sunday exhausted from feeling like everyone around them wants something from them. Whether it's your employer, a parent, whether it's a, um, a teacher, a spouse, your children, a roommate. Think about your week and think about how people have wanted something from you. And given that reality, if that is your reality, then I can understand why why some people might be hesitant to want to get up on Sunday morning and come to church. Great. Here's one more person who wants something from me, and this time it's a deity. And yet that's where many people are. 
That's why many people come in, they're exhausted, and they're not necessarily wanting to hear someone like me get up because they're thinking, oh, great, here comes yet one more set of expectations, a checklist, a do list that you're going to give to me. I've already got enough of them. But the question is, what does God want for us? And my desire is that throughout the series is that we would allow the Scripture to to fire our imaginations, to stir our imaginations so that we might grasp what it is that God wants to do in and through us because He loves us. And so last week I wanted to lay the foundation for that question. And I answered the question that, you know, what does that look like? And, And I gave you this basic theme that God wants to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. God wants to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. God wants us to be like Jesus. And we've got a description of that in Galatians 5, to 25. If you're looking down, you can just let your eye go down there. It's a life that is animated by the Spirit. It's described by Paul in Galatians as the fruit of the Spirit. Now, why does God want to do that? If that's the what, what's the why? Why does God want to do that? And the answer that I gave to you last week that I suggested is because he loves us. Because he loves us. God wants to do this in our lives because he loves us. Our transformation flows out of God's unfathomable love for us. And that's why that was so important to stop and to rest on that last week. Because unless you have that settled, you really can't move on in really embracing what it is that God wants to do for you and for us. Because it's only as you really are are settled in God's unfathomable love for you will you trust that he has your best interests in mind, right? If you know that someone really, really, really loves you, then you can trust that they have your best interests in mind. Why? Because you know they love you. And that's the same with God. You have to have that issue settled, that God really does love you and he loves us. So last week I addressed the what and the why question. Today I want to spend time on the how question. How. How does God transform us? How does God transform us? How does he make us into a people who are marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and on and on the list goes? How does he do that? And this is where David Brooks' book encounters a limitation because I think that it addresses the the what and the why, but the how is really left to us. It's it's kind of moves into kind of the um, kind of virtue ethics, Greek virtue ethics, where it's kind of the it's up to our practice, and we just need to go practice something. And yet, when you look at the the text that we're looking at today, Galatians five, Paul tells us that transformation involves the work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who produces what is called the fruit of the Spirit. So with your text open to Galatians chapter 5, look down at that text with me. We're going to be looking at it here in a second. But I want you to notice, first of all, that that in order to understand this this issue of this language that Paul uses about the fruit of the Spirit, I think it's important to understand that there's a background to his language, and it comes out of the Old Testament. It comes out of Israel's narrative. The fruit metaphor was part of Israel's narrative. When you open up the very beginning, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, you see that, that that fruit narrative, the fruitfulness narrative, is right there at the very first. God commands humanity to be fruitful and to multiply. You remember that in Genesis 1? In Genesis 17, God makes a promise to Abraham. 
And, and he, three times in Genesis 17, he talks about the fact that he is going to make Abraham fruitful. And if you know the story, Abraham and his wife were very, very old. They were not inclined to believe that they were going to have children when you're in your 90s. And yet God says, I'm going to bring children through you, and through you I'm going to bless all the nations. You're going to be so prolific, so fruitful, that the nations are going to be blessed through you. So the theme of fruitfulness begins very early on in the book of Genesis. Israel is described as a fruit-bearing vineyard in Isaiah 5, 1-7, and is criticized for failing to bear the fruit that was expected of her. And that's the moral character that she was expected to produce. In at least two of the prophetic texts, the Old Testament prophetic texts, Israel's future fruitfulness is connected with the Spirit. And you see that in Isaiah 32, verses 15 and 16, Joel 2, 18-32. Now, with that background, okay, that, that, that there's a background for the language of fruit-bearing and fruitfulness in the Old Testament, when Paul picks up this language of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, it's very likely that Paul expected his readers to make a connection between God's promise and the Spirit. God's promise to Israel and the coming of the Spirit of which there would then be fruit. Israel, God's people, would once again be fruitful, but it would take the Spirit. So now Paul is talking about the Spirit, and he's talking about the fruit, and it's as if he wants the readers to say, oh my, that means this is happening. All that we long for in the Old Testament is now coming to pass, and Paul is talking about it to us in this letter. In other words, Paul is saying, now that the Spirit has been poured out on all of God's people, not just the not just the Jewish people, but Jew and Gentile, and that took place at Pentecost, you can expect to see the fruit of the Spirit. And I think that seems to be what's behind Paul's words in verse 25. Look down at the text. If we live by the Spirit, or sense, that's a better translation of the Greek, since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Paul is saying, since the Spirit has given you life, then keep in step with the Spirit. So how does God transform us? The Spirit gives us life as we turn to Jesus and we trust Him to direct our lives. So the question is, have you done that? Have you turned to Jesus and have you trusted Him to direct your life? I didn't ask you if you believed that Jesus was a living person. Historians believe that, but they don't, they don't do what I just described. You turn to Jesus and you trust him to direct your life. You're trusting someone other than yourself to direct your life. You're trusting Jesus. And when that happens, the Spirit gives us life. And Paul then says in verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, that's the indicative, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's the imperative. Now why do I say that? Because that is a pattern with Paul. He says the commands, the imperatives, Always follow the indicative. God, first of all, says, this is true. This is what I've done for you. And because I've done this for you, then here's your response to it. It's always a response. It's not just a raw command. It's a response to what God has done for us. And so he's saying, since we live, we live because of the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So yes, we do have a part to play. But listen to me, it is not to transform ourselves. 
This is not a do-it-yourself self-improvement project that Paul is describing. Listen to me, because some of you need that ripped out of your hands. That is why some of you stand so far off from God and so far away from Jesus. It's because, like probably me, you've been in churches where, or you've been around teachers, or you've heard someone give you the impression, whether they meant to or not, to give you the impression that this is a do-it-yourself project. And yet Paul doesn't tell us that at all. He says that the Spirit of God does the transformation. We're called to keep and stop. Let that sink. So how does that work? Well, if you look at the context, you see this, this discussion about the Spirit and the flesh. Paul says the Spirit does battle against what he calls the flesh. And what's the flesh? I don't have like an hour to talk about this, and I spent hours reading about this and studying this. But it's Pauline language, and he chooses this terminology very purposefully in the context of Galatians. And that's, I'm going to at least let those who are the kind of the Greek scholars out there know, I did do my homework, okay? But I can tell you this, it's not the body. Flesh can be used to talk about the body, but it's not the body in this sense of viewing the body as something that is bad or sinful. So Paul does not have a view of the body that the Greeks would have had, that the body is sinful or the body is bad, and therefore we need to jettison our body and become spirits, and that that's the highest form you can have. I mean, Jesus himself was resurrected in a body, right? That's a great way of knowing that the body matters because Jesus himself was resurrected in a body, a real human body. So I'm going to give you, for the sake of not having a giant discussion on this, I'm going to give you my best definition, at least my best attempt at a definition, for the flesh. And it's on the screen behind me. The flesh, the devices and desires, whether internal namely our own impulses, or external, the impulses we adopt from our culture that turn us away from God and toward self-sufficiency. So the devices and desires, whether internal, our own impulses, or external, the impulses we adopt from our culture. So I'm saying that the culture can shape us in this area. That turn us away from God and toward self-sufficiency. Now why did I choose to, to frame it this way? Well, it's from reading the text of Scripture. And when you read the text of Scripture, you see that we are created beings. We're not self-created beings. And we are created as, as dependent creatures. We are finite creatures. And we are created for a, a relationship with God. We're not created just to exist in and of ourselves, but we're created for a relationship with God. And that relationship that we're created to have with God is a relationship that's marked by joyful, life-giving dependence. So we're never, inten- we're never intended to, to walk away from this posture of dependence, but it's to be something that we live out of. And so the, the movement towards self-sufficiency is a movement away from what we're created to be. Did you hear that? The movement towards self-sufficiency is a movement away from what we are intended to be. It is less than human. It is subhuman. And yet that's what our culture is screaming at us from the minute we can begin to first decipher TV commercials. You need to be self-sufficient. And we are scrambling and scrambling and scrambling until we take our last breath to make sure that that's the way we'll die. And yet the scripture challenges that. It also says that when the Spirit brings life, 
you look at the, the fruit of the Spirit, it's very other-centered. It's not self-centered. Again, it's not the self-focus, but it's other-centered. Look at Galatians 5.22. Look, look at the fruit that's being described here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. That You've got to have someone beside yourself to love, right? If you're going to love. It's getting real basic here. Peace. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then in verse 26, he says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the opposite of that, again, is, is this focus upon otherness, that the life of the Spirit creates an otherness. And what's interesting, when Paul talks about the marks of the flesh in verses 19 to 21, those are all things that destroy relationships. Look at these descriptions with that in mind. What destroys human relationships? What destroys human flourishing? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Yes, you can say orgies in church. Those are the things that destroy human relationships. And that's not, the, that's not the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is intended to make us, point us outward. Stephen Guthrie, writing in Creator Spirit, cites Athanasius, the third century church father, when he writes these words. Apart from God's Spirit, we are not simply less good or less pleasant human beings. Apart from God's Spirit, we sink further and further away from our humanity. More than that, separate from the source of life, we sink further from being into non-existence. It's interesting that when the first humans turned away from God, the source of life, they tragically return to dust. So what Paul portrays here in Galatians chapter 5 is not a picture of a stalemate between two equal forces, the flesh and the spirit, with the individual Christian caught in this push-pull in life. Paul does not say here that the flesh and the spirit are equal powers. The spirit has been given to keep us from giving in to the impulses that turn us away from God and toward our own devices and desires. Notice verse 16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, result. You will not gratify the desire of the flesh. It's not, the second part isn't a command. It's indicative. It's not imperative. This is the result of walking by the Spirit. They are not equal and opposite powers. David De Silva writes, this is the spirit's war, not the believer's war, against the impulsive desire of the flesh. The spirit is not a resource to, resource to help us in our battle. Instead, we've been drafted to get in step with the spirit, to fall into line under the leadership of the spirit. You catching that? See, this is a battle the Spirit cannot lose if we fall into line. So here's kind of the, the, kind of the 
twist for me as I was thinking about this this week and studying this and having all these moments where God was just like challenging all the views that I've held in the past. It seems like my own experience, and perhaps maybe I'm speaking for a lot of Christians and people that I've seen in Christian churches, is that we can receive the life of God and be indwelt by the very Spirit of God and expect life to be the same. Am I describing anybody? Why is it that we can receive the life of God, be indwelt by the very Spirit of God, and turn around and expect life to be the same? One of the three men closest to Jesus wrote these words, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. John wrote that, 1 John 4, 4. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. For it is God who works in you, in me, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It is God The God who speaks the universe into existence. The God who delivered Israel out of captivity and slavery in Egypt. It's the God who speaks to the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee and they instantly respond. It's the God who speaks to a corpse in a tomb and the corpse has a name and his name is Lazarus and that four-day-old corpse comes walking out of the tomb. It's the God who himself walked out of the tomb and is alive today and his name is Jesus. That's the God who is at work in you. The God who flung the stars into existence. The God who is described in the scriptures again and again and again. And Paul comes and he says, he is in you. And what are we supposed to say? Is football on tonight? Who's playing tonight? How can we do that? How can we not be different? I think it's in part because we've come to not expect anything to be different. We've not come to realize that this is not some equal battle between the flesh and the spirit and we should just expect to just mosey along through life, barely make it over the finish line and we're exhausted at the end when we die and we go like, oh, what a struggle it's been. I can't wait till I get to heaven. When in reality... We have been given so much more right now through the Spirit. That has not been our history here as a church. We we don't come from a Pentecostal background where they talk about the Spirit a lot or a charismatic background where they expect the Spirit to really uh, be present and to be one of the members of the Trinity. (laughs) But it's biblical. It's biblical. Paul wants us to see that this is the life that we've been given. The one who is in you is greater than any internal or external forces you might encounter in life. The spirit who indwells you is more powerful than anything that you might see is an obstacle to you living a life that looks like Jesus. Whatever obstacle is keeping you from that, Jesus 
is more powerful. The spirit who indwells you is more powerful. Greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. That's what my Bible tells me. That's what God wants us to hear. So God wants to transform us to be more like Jesus, to be more fully human, to be more fully alive. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. And he's given us his spirit to make that happen. As I was praying about, well, okay, so what? So what? But then, I, I, you know, as I was out, I, I go out and I walk and I pray and I talk to God about what it is that he wants me to do up here. And the thing that I was struck by was that we are commanded repeatedly to be filled with the Spirit. That we have opportunities to be filled again and again and again, meaning that, that to experience the Spirit's refreshing, the Spirit's enlivening, the Spirit's uh, awareness of his presence in our lives in a very tangible way. It's not simply that we fill our heads and we just remember things as if we have this really bad memory and we forget things between Sundays. But there's some tangible encounter with the Spirit we're intended to have. And in light of this text that we've been looking at today and laying this foundation for the, the work that God wants to do in our lives, I, I thought it would be fitting to once again, we prayed last week, and I want to offer an opportunity to pray again. But this time, to invite you to, to respond if you so desire, to come forward, and then I will pray for you. And very specifically, praying for this, that, that you would and we would welcome the Spirit today. To have a posture simply of saying, by coming up here and being prayed over, is that I want to welcome the Spirit afresh in my life. It's, it's having this tangible awareness that, that there is a relationship and you can welcome the Spirit or you cannot welcome the Spirit. In the same way that I can welcome you or I cannot welcome you in my relationship. And so the Spirit, as we know from reading the text of Scripture, can be grieved. The Spirit can be repulsed, in a sense, by our response. And so I'm offering you the opportunity today simply to come forward. Beth is going to sing over us. Uh, Beth, you want to come and move up and... Um, and then we'll just gather up here, and then she'll sing, and then I'll pray, and then I'll send you back to your seats. And I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but if you feel like that's something you want to do, then just join me down here, and, uh, and we'll pray. move in close to someone around you, okay? I want you to do the same thing I asked you to do last week. Put one hand on the person by you, and the reason for that is a reminder that you're not in this alone. We are a community, okay? You're not in this alone. And then the other I've asked you to put your hand over your own heart. Feel your heart. 
I really believe the Spirit of God wants to warm our hearts. I'm, I myself have had the experiences where someone has prayed, they put their hand over my heart, and the Spirit has flooded me with His warmth. I think that's possible. Now I want to invite you to just simply say these words, I welcome you, Spirit. I welcome you, Spirit. And then I want to pray now. Spirit of God, we welcome you. We invite you. We invite you to be the person that you want to be, to reveal yourself to us, to do your work. Renew us. Give us hearts that are warm towards you, hearts that trust you, hearts that do not fear. Drive out the narratives, the lies that perhaps we've been telling ourselves that we've believed over the years. And may we just simply, like children, trust. Thank you for loving us. I pray for each of the people who are up here who are saying that they welcome you. Flood them with the warmth of your grace and your love. Embrace them with your arms. Enfold them in your care. Assure them that they belong to you, that you love them and you will never let them go. Jesus, thank you. We look to you. We trust you. And we praise you for loving us. Bless us now through your spirit. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated.